Good morning. So my name is Billy, and uh, I'm not wearing a collar. I'm not just some guy that walked in off the street. But I am a pastor here in town. I had the blessing of uh, speaking at the men's retreat last week, and I just love this community. It's awesome. And today I get to preach, which is fun for me, and we are going to be talking about that passage we read at the beginning of the service in Jeremiah 8. And uh, as I was studying this passage, I was remembering this story with, with, I've got three kids. I've got a little boy who's 10. I've got two daughters. And my boy, probably about five, five or six years ago, we were doing a home renovation and I had to, uh, we were painting this room. So I, I had to go to a paint store right around the corner. And I was, you know, looking at paint swatches. Now, listen, I, I know Jesus and I know my eternal salvation, my eternal home. But if I did not, Hell would be a paint store for me <laughs> that played kids' bop music. So I'm there with my son, who is four, and you can imagine how entertained he was watching, you know, his dad play. You look at color swatches during this time, and, you know, four-year-olds doing Four-year-olds, he's running around. I'm just trying to keep him from dumping a gallon bucket of primer on his head. And then eventually I see him over in the corner and he's pulled some yellow box out, and he's, he's banging on it. He's sitting on the floor. He's happy. And as the old adage goes, don't try to make a happy baby happier. And uh, so I left him. And a couple minutes later, I, I was like, you know, good parenting would dictate me going over to see what he's actually playing with. So I walk over, and I lean down, and there's my son. He has a box of razor blades. And he's banging it. Thank God he didn't burst it open. And I was horrified, like, Dad fail. And I go and I pull, pull the box of razor blades out of, his, out of his hands. He had no idea what this was and why he was, you know. And as you can imagine, he wailed. He just wailed. And you haven't parented until you pull a wailing child out of a paint store, carrying him like a surfboard under your arm. But, you know, I thought about that story later, and I thought to myself, you know, it's really easy as a parent to get frustrated with a kid in a position like that. But, you know, he's four. And at age four, you have one job. In fact, you are hardwired. that you, It's an unavoidable reality. When you are a four-year-old, you do one thing, and that is play. In fact, it's not a question of if you're going to play. It's a question of what are you going to play with. And if there's not something that's 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 safe or good, you're going to find something around to mess with, be it, a, be it a, a stick, a rope, or a box of razor blades. And I thought about that story, and I realized, you know what? We are exactly the same way. And here's what I mean. God has hardwired your heart, and he has hardwired my heart for certain things, certain things that we are driven by that are unavoidable. And what I want to talk about today is the way that we are hardwired in our hearts fundamentally to worship. We are worshipers. Our hearts, it's an unavoidable reality. In fact, it's not a question of if we're going to worship something. The question is, what are we worshiping? Because when we worship something, what we do is we, we grab something and we grant it authority in our lives. We say, this is the thing that we're going to serve because this is the thing that's going to define me. It's going to give me my purpose. It's going to give me my sense of belonging. It's going to give me my sense of meaning. What I worship determines so much about my purpose and the rise and fall. My mind, will, emotions will serve that thing. 
And that's not an accident we're that way. God, that's God's fault. God built us that way. And the reason he did it is that he made us. And he wants us to worship him, not because he's insecure and he needs to go through the affirmation car wash of his people every day because he doesn't feel good about himself. He does it because he loves us. And he made us in such a way that we don't function properly unless we are standing in the presence of that love and that connected relationship. Because when we stand in that, we, we, are in, we are home. We're in connection with that thing that we were meant to be connected with him. And, and when we do that, two things happen. When we experience that thing that, that we were made for, that thing that, we, that loves us, we love him back. I can't get close enough to it. First John 4 says, it's not that we love God, it's that he loved us first. That when I experience it, I, it's like a flower turning to sunlight. I, I, my heart just automatically goes to it. And the second thing it does for me, or for all of us, is that when we love something, we begin to love, or we begin to love to do the things that that thing we love loves. Does that make sense? When you love something, you love what they love. I love an action movie. But I tell you what, when I met my wife and I fell in love with her, you better believe I curled up on that couch and watched The Notebook. <laughs> oh, and I, and I not only watched it, I loved it. I was dirty crying. It was awesome. <laughs> James Garner, you know, Jim Rockford was dancing with her at the end. You know what I'm talking about? Oh. It's awesome. But the problem is, see, we live in this broken world. It's this world that's marked by sin. And we hear that word a lot, sin. See it painted on plywood signs on the side of the road. What that means is that connection we have with God, that thing that we were made for has been broken. But the way we've been made is still intact. I'm still a worshiper. That worship knob on me is at 10 all the time. And where Jesus is not in my life or I don't see God clearly like my son in that paint store, when I don't have anything to worship, I'm going to find something. And I will, that, I will occupy the throne of my heart with the things of this world that are shiny, that promise me a sense of, of resolution, a sense of identity that's going to work this thing out, this thing called life. You know, give me my value. Now, when you read the Bible, Scripture has a way of talking about this, and it uses the word idols. You guys have heard this before. Now, let me tell you, idols, when we're talking about it for our purposes today, idols, I'm not talking about carved images. I'm talking about those things in our life we use in the place of Jesus. And I'm also not just talking about the bad things in our lives, like the drugs or the rock and roll or the bad decisions we make. Idols are much sneakier than that. I love uh, the way Tim Keller talks about it. He says that idols, something becomes an idol when we take a good thing, a good thing, and we make it an ultimate thing. When I take this thing that, was, that, that is of this world, that is a, a good thing, family, work, money, my, the opinions of others, it can be a good thing. 
And when I put them on the throne of my heart, they, to ask them to give me the validation and purpose, oh my gosh, it becomes in time that box of razor blades that bursts open. You know, it's it, when I deal, when I sit with married couples, so often, maybe this will sound really familiar to you, you know, you meet someone, you date them, and all of a sudden you, you get and you say, oh, this is the one. This is the person that's going to make this right. All the tracks in my life that are doing this, finally someone's going to bring resolution to this. And then you get married, and in time, that sort of, you know, the cartoon birds that fly around your head fly away, and all of a sudden you realize you're married to a person. Guess what? They realized they were married to a person too. Yeah. It's true. And we know marriage becomes an idol because that's sort of unspoken thing in our heart. We begin to say that, and we will never say this out loud. You were supposed to fix this. You were supposed to be the one. When I took that vow, what I was saying was I would, there was this sort of consuming thing in me that says that you were going to be the one that brought resolution in my life. But look at the pain I still carry. It's your fault. I'm done. Now, here's the deal. We all do it in different ways. I've done that in my own marriage. I've done it. We do it with work, with money, and everything. The worst thing about it, about those false promises and the things we use, because they're good things, we can never see it. Oh, my gosh, it's so woven into the fabric of our egos and, our, and, our, and our, the designs for our own life. We just can't see it. So what does Jesus do about it? The gospel says that God came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. This is our passage, Jeremiah 8. God is talking to Israel. And they're in the promised land. And, for, and he has said, just worship me. Be, I'll be your God. You be my people. But for generations, they have thrown off worshiping him and have gone. These people that were created to live separate from the rest of the world in a different way than the rest of the world, rather. They are trying to be like the rest of the world. And they worship all kinds of idols. And God warns them and warns them through the prophets. And Jeremiah comes. He says, hey, guys, this is not going well. And God is angry. And I'm telling you, he is raising up this army of Babylonians. And they're coming in. And he is going to take this all away from you. And then we get to our passage, there's this, this kind of weird three-part conversation between Jeremiah, God, and the people. Verse 18, Jeremiah says, he, Jeremiah, he's crying, he's, he's just, you know, he, he's, you can just feel his tears. Maybe you just saw the notebook. Um, <laughs> verse 18, my joy is gone, grief is upon me. Behold, the cry of my daughter, of my people. And then the people respond because they're totally obtuse. Huh? I know things aren't going well, but where's God in all this? They don't even see the ways that they have just made a mess of things. And then God chimes in. He says, why have they provoked me to anger with all these carved images and, then, and these idols? And then the, the people obtuse again. What are you talking about? God, where are you? The summer's gone. You, you're supposed to have fixed all this. And then Jeremiah for the wound of the daughter of my people, my heart is wounded. I am covered in dismay. And there's a couple of things I want you to see with this. And I touched on it earlier. Is first, we can't see the idols in our lives until God smashes them. 
Israel's there. They've been living in this sort of bubble. And, they're, and they're, when, when Jeremiah calls them out and things are going bad, they're incredulous. They blame God. They're like, where's God in all this? Not seeing the ways that they have grabbed those boxes of razor blades in their life. And the only way God knows is that they're going to be able to see the bankruptcy of the things that they're using to define them and drive them is to go in and to, and, and, and to stir this up and through this invasion that he brings to show them that everything they, they had that they're taking for granted was from God and to reveal the things that he's been protecting them from for years. Now, it's easy to judge Israel. It's easy to look at them, but we're the same way. See, when we worship those idols, like I said, it cuts with the grain of my, all my designs, my, my ego, all the plans that I have for my life, for my marriage, my work, my, 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 my family. And when Jesus isn't on the throne, I put something there, and I can't see it. I used this last week at the men's retreat, and we'll say it again. It's like this. If I walked up to a fish, and I said, hey, how's the water? The fish would look at me and say, what's water? But if I reached in, and I pulled that fish out, and I held it up, and I asked him the same question, he'd have a very different response, wouldn't he? He'd know exactly what water is. When it comes to idols, that's kind of the way we are. It's only when those things are smashed can we begin to see the role they've played in our lives. But I read that passage in Jeremiah, and i got to be honest, I get the sort of grand theological point, but it's still problematic for me. It's kind of scary, right? Like God wrecked a nation. <laughs> like he went in. This wasn't just something like that happened. And I think to myself, is that the way God's going to deal with me? And the point I want to make here is this. When God talks about why have they provoked my anger, God's not angry at Israel, though he is, as much as he is angry for Israel. He wants them to be in that relationship with him. He wants them to be, come to me. Get your identity from me. Let me love you. That is what you were made for. How do I know that? Because by reading the words of Jeremiah that, through Jeremiah's tears. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet. And any time a prophet speaks or, or emotes or says something in Scripture, more times than not, it is usually a symbolic representation of the heart of God. And what was Jeremiah's heart in this? What was God's heart in this? God saw the wounds of the people, the ones that they had brought on themselves, and he says, my joy is gone. He's saying, what you've brought on yourself, I can hear your cries. That grief is on me. The, your wound is my wound, and I want you, Israel. Let me say this for, for you here that call ourselves Christians. You are Israel now. And God's heart for them is his heart for you. You are his people. And the beautiful thing is we live in a different part of this story. We live in a very different part of this narrative where, we're, where we see God's hunger for that eternal healing and our restoration of our purpose. It drove God to step from the throne room of heaven to become Jesus. 
where Jesus became like Israel, where he would climb up on a cross and he would suffer for the ways that we picked up those boxes of razor blades and used the things of this world and all the anger and the justice and all that stuff that we kind of see represented in this passage. He said, I'll take it. Pour it on me. What the Babylonians did, have it be done to me. And he did it and he died. So you didn't have to. So I didn't have to. He suffered those wounds. You ever want to know what you're worth? You ever want to know what anything's worth? Look at the price tag. Because the price tag says not just what it's worth, but what someone's willing to pay for it. And your price tag and my price tag is Jesus on the cross. That's how much you're worth. And what that does for us as his children, we realize that when we serve idols, God's wrath is gone. In Jesus, there is only love for us. And where he doesn't punish us, he's now a father that moves to discipline and save and protect his children to pull those things out of our hands that he knows will hurt us that we can't see. And so when his heart, when he moves in the life of his children, so oftentimes what it looks like is the stress of shattering the things in our life that we have clung to so deeply. That when we cry out, we say, God, where are you? Where are you in my business? Because my bank account's really running dry. In my marriage, in my relationship with my children, so often that's God stirring the parts in. Can you see? Can you see what you're looking to? Because here's the deal. God wants your heart more than he wants you in any position. More than he wants you to have anything or to do anything for him. He wants you first. And he will leave heaven to get it. And he did. And when that happens in our lives and we see those things by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can stop and we don't have to say, God, where are you? Though we do. And we can ask the question, Lord, what is this thing in my life? What throne does this occupy? How do I give this back? And when we see it, we can, we can just do the simple, profound, life-changing work of repentance. What a flat word. We've used it so much to say, hey, God, I, I couldn't even see that stuff. Thank you, God. Forgive me, please. Restore me. Restore the joy of my salvation. And when God moves in that place, he redeems our lives. And those good things we use to make ultimate things, guess what he does? He just makes them good things again. That my job can be something that, I, that is for the comfort of my family, but also for the blessing of others. That I can move in these relationships with people and I can get praise, but it's not doesn't define everything about me. And before I finish, I want to be careful about one thing. I want to say this. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Every pain in your life is, might not be the product of some idol. Life hurts. And some of you deal with grief that I, I don't have a reference point for. And to be honest, I don't want one. Because I know what you've been through. But as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. 
We are idol factories. We make these things. We take the good things. And we make them ultimate things. But Jeremiah wasn't the only one that cried over Israel. Jesus did in Luke 19 before he died. And, and he knew a time was coming where Israel would be destroyed. But before that time, he said this, I will be destroyed. I will be destroyed for the hearts of my people. Because they matter more to me than my own comfort. They matter more to me, their wholeness, because they are the joy set before me. You read that passage in Hebrews? You ever hear this? About Christ dying for the joy set before him. You know what that joy was? You. I don't mean you and the globalism. I mean you. Specifically. So today as we come and we experience that kind of love. The love that our hearts were designed for. And we turn to it. And we can love God back. And we can begin to surrender and see those things afresh in our life. And look at the suffering and the pain that we might experience as all of us in here have something. And we can say, hey, well, what did you have for me in that? What would you have me lay down that I could pick up what is true of me already in Christ? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. It's okay? Yeah. Father, thank you uh, that you love us enough not to leave us to be content with the razor blades uh, of this world. Lord, that I won't grab the good things and make them ultimate things. Uh, I pray by your mercy that you would give me eyes to see the way that you uh, would either reveal that to us or you would stir our lives and we could see the, the, the difficulties as not just showing us that, that, that it's not evidence of you abandoning us, but it's evidence of you calling us forward. I thank you, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.